0: Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Hall, and we are back with a new episode of what we're calling Calcio Castaway. Now, first of all, we at site would like to wish our listeners our best in these pretty troubled times at the moment. Lockdown's probably hit everyone quite hard. And it's part of the reason we've been off the radar, but it's also part of the reason we are now back. Now, one of our esteemed editors, Neil Morris, the other day was tweeting a thread on our Twitter handles, which is uh, certainly worth a look. And he was asking our readers to reflect on some of their, silly, our favourite goals. The responses were pretty incredible. I mean, even now I'm kind of thinking of another two that I would like to see. Maybe Carlos Tevez and that mazy run against Parma. Um, I think it was Parma. Andrea Pirlo's ridiculous rocket also. And my personal favourite, which I posted, was Yuri Jorkiev's Durk- magnificent overhead kick against Roma. Personally, which I think was the best, but obviously that's just me. But it's worth looking at because we're still taking requests and uh, they're all good to see. I mean, we could do an episode all about just that. Now, whilst we were tweeting that thread, someone gave us an idea that, you know, whilst people in uh, lockdown turn to nostalgia, it's not a bad thing at all. And this certain person on the thread said, potentially, we should turn this into a series. So we have. So the idea really is that if you're in a desert island or if you're in lockdown, whichever you prefer, and you can only watch two goals, that's the only two goals you could ever have. You can only watch one game. And you can have one player as well to keep you company. Who and what would they be? So, when we thought about this, we thought, you don't just want to hear our opinions. We thought we'd ask some of Calcio's elite the same question. So, we thought we'd start with the man whose brainchild this was. The man who had the idea rather than the thread was no other than Dominic Bliss, author of Erbstein, the triumph of tragedy of football's forgotten pioneer, the biography of the Grande Torino manager, Holocaust survivor, Erno Egri Erbstein. So, welcome to the show, Dom. How are you? How's life and how's football been? Well, life without football been treating you.
1: I'm all right. I'm not bad. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm like a lot of people at the moment, uh, trying to find ways to get my football fix and a bit of nostalgia, watching old clips, YouTube holes, and uh, reading up on all those football books that you've had on the bookshelf for five years and not got round to. Yeah,
0: it's, it's amazing how, it's amazing for me personally, how clear the memories are from, especially like some of the Italian games in the early 90s, you, you, I remember them more than I can remember what happened last season, but maybe that's just age. But it's, um, it's certainly uh, certainly something that's been, uh, you know, entertaining and at least we've got that. And, and we've got to thank you for this idea as well because, uh, yeah, you're your
1: brainchild really. So we owe this one for you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, I thought it'd be quite a cool idea. Uh, you've terrified me with your intro there because I've got four goals, one player and one game. And that's
0: that's fine as well. (laughs)
1: I'll just have to keep it short (laughs) on each one.
0: (laughs) Well, what we'll do, we'll do, we'll do the two goals. We'll do the player. We'll do the game. And if we've got time, we'll throw in the other two.
1: Okay.
0: Excellent, stuff. Okay. So without further ado, I think we'll uh, start with the first one. So the first one I wanted to talk about, uh, which is one goal that I remember extremely well, is uh, a little unknown person at 17 years old in December 1999 uh, may have made himself known since then uh Antonio Cassano and it was his first goal for Bari against Inter. So Antonio Cassano That's Antonio Cassano. As an Inter fan myself, I'm not going to forget that. Talk us through it.
1: Yeah, sorry about that. Um, (laughs) Okay, Antonio Cassano at this stage. uh, I was so into Italian football at this point and there there was a little bit of noise about him. But this is pre-Internet, you know, in the real sense. And um, it was just a case of occasionally you'd hear someone mention him. Uh, he played, this is his second game, and he came off the bench at 17 years old for Bari against Inter. It was the 88th minute, and it's a 40-yard pass that he's running onto. He collects the ball on his heel, first of all, behind him, controls it on his heel, brings it in front of him with that first touch, and then skips past two little-known players. I think it was Chris and Lauren Blanc. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Then he rolls, rolls the ball in, 2-1 win over Inter. It's a huge result. 17-year-old kids announced himself on the scene. And, uh, yeah, it, it earned him that nickname. He has Fantantonio, uh, the sort of mixing the the fantasy and the effectiveness of uh, your ideal Italian striker. We had such high hopes for him at the time, I think. Um, I say we, I don't, I don't mean I'm a Bari fan. I just mean we as in Italian football fans. And... Um, I went to uh, Bari in 2014, and it's one of my favourite cities in Italy because, in a way, for a seaside city, it's understated. It's not full of tourists. The food there is incredible, and you get to mm-hmm. see, the, you get to see the, the fishermen coming in in the morning with their catch, and, and, and you can see them beating the polpo and what you're going to be eating that, that evening. Um, and um, you then wander through Bari Vecchia, which is the old town, where lots of the people live how they have done for decades, hundreds of years. You go through these little um, winding avenues. Uh, avenues, that's the wrong word, alleys. And uh, <laughs> on the side of the alleys, there are lots of lots, lots of graffiti and stickers. And I always remember seeing a sticker with Antonio Cassano's face on it in the depths of Barra Vecchia. It said Fant Antonio with a cartoon of his face. And uh, they still loved him. It was even in Sampdoria colours, the sticker. They still loved him in Bari. Um, so I, I, I remember that trip. I remember as well for how people of Bari loved their football. And I think it came across in the way he played. You know, they, yeah. they, 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 they had the last game of the season while I was out there and they needed to win to get into the playoffs, but they were going under. And uh, all around the city, every cafe, every bar had a poster in the doorway that said, Comprate la Bari. Buy Bari. <laughs> they, they were in so much trouble. And 35,000 people turned out for that last game of the season against Cittadella. Uh, one of whom was an away fan. I'll always remember that. There was one away fan with two flags. <laughs> um, they, they won the game, went to the playoffs. They didn't go up, but they did get bought. But you know, the, the, the memories of Bari for me go back to Casano. Yeah. Uh, yeah maybe today playing for them, but really, Casano and that goal, it was just such a remarkable... I, I, I implore everyone listening to go back and watch it. It was the, the first touch on his heel for a lad making his second senior appearance. Uh, it's just remarkable.
0: I think, yeah, you're right. And,
1: and and that first touch,
0: it just shows the confidence that he was going to have. I mean, he's obviously a character now. But to do that and to to take on the inter-defence like he did and to have that composure was was special and and also i think when you look i think barry i don't know if you agree with this but i think it holds a bit of a place in a lot of people's hearts in the uk because pe- people have a certain vintage growing up in the early 90s and, and watching obviously football italia etc you know and especially Italian 90 i mean the san nicola stadium the spaceship it's just oh. an incredible yeah. stadium uh, a bit bit of a white elephant if you would in some respects i mean it's bizarre the story of how that was built why it was even built in bari it was almost um almost like an afterthought in a sense and the, like the you say that small there's town a, to have that
1: stadium is incredible there's a train station built next to it uh yeah. which was part of the infrastructure for italia 90 and the train station uh has never once been connected to any railway um because they never completed that that structure so the the white elephant thing was there from the moment it started Mm. you know it it wasn't something that a few years later they thought Christ we spent a lot of money on that for (laughs) no real reason it looks like like you say it looks like a spaceship especially as the fact that when you go there people just park on the side of the motorway or they park in these little chopped down bamboo fields almost as just sort of bamboo type grass and you can hear it clanking against the bottom of the car as you're parking in these car parks where they have the little stewards you know like they do even in grounds in england guide you to a field that suddenly become <laughs> a car park and you get out and all you can see across the fields is this unbelievable landed spaceship that is actually the san nicola stadium it's, it is a beautiful is it um is it a reno piano um architect um but yeah, it's, it's quite it's
0: remarkable It's incredible. i think everyone remembers you know that stadium, obviously, from, from from Italia 90 and the games that were played there, I think uh, third-place playoff was definitely played there, wasn't it? It was uh, the England-Italy game. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who which group stage it held now. But it was uh, after that as well, obviously, with David Platt going over to Bari, it was one of those sort of iconic grounds and iconic teams in a sense. Now, I always feel with Bari, it was um, like a question of what could have been. Because hmm. like say, it is that sort of sleepy, uh, southern town but that stadium and what it was, if they'd have really put the infrastructure in, uh, you do think that Bari could potentially have been a team that could have stayed up for longer. But just before we leave that, I mean, that team that uh, Antonio Cassano was in uh, when he when he did uh, make that debut and scored that goal uh, against Inter. I mean, that season they finished, what, 14th? Um, not, when you look, it's not the greatest of squads. I mean, they've got the, the goalkeeper, who I think was uh, it's, uh, Francesco Mancini who I think was ex-Foggia. And they've got, I mean, film the singers in that squad. You know, yeah. <laughs> I always forget that he was at Bari. They always tended to get one or two players who you just thought, oh, wow, can't believe he was there. But I mean, realistically, um, you can understand why um, the, the fans at Bari just think of him, like you said there, and held him in such high regard. Because, I mean, he was one of the real serious talents to come out of there, wasn't he?
1: He was, yeah. It was it was um it was the prospect that he held, the promise that he showed that was so exciting about Cassano. We look back now and we probably think he flitted around the clubs a bit. He didn't take his fitness as seriously as he might have done and what could have been to a to a degree, although he still achieved some big things, but there's a sense of what could have been. But I like to remember him as the the raw potential for the promise and the excitement that that he burned with in those early games, yeah, absolutely right. Well, we're going to continue that journey then with uh,
0: another goal here. Um, this one is from 2009, um, in a Sicilian derby, Palermo versus Catania.
1: I'm going to go to also two nitide, now the morale, the goal. Goal. Non ci credo. Meglio di Beckham.
0: Now, the bit I love about that commentary is right at the end when the commentator yeah. just compares it in Mascara who <laughs> he scored that goal to Beckham. And, I mean, talk us through it and tell us why that comparison's there.
1: Yeah, it's one of those audacious, long-range dippers where someone on the halfway line Pepe Mascara in this case, the uh, Catania player, just a, a player with so much cheek, so much sauce, and he's just basically mm-hmm. absolutely levered one with his laces up in the air, Big Dipper, and it's dropped down over the goalie in and in. Uh, and I just remember being outraged by that goal at the time. And uh, obviously, it was a Catania team that introduced us to um, the fact that the Sicilian football had more depth than Palermo. Um, you had that little period where I think Messina were in Serie at the same time, where there were three Sicilian clubs mm. in there. And I don't know. I found that Catania team quite exciting. Um, but even after that, it's another place I visited, and um, they were still banging on about it five years later when <laughs> I went. Uh, you know, I, I met I met my friend Sergio for some drinks and his friends, and uh, they were getting the phones out and showing me the mascaras. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember. But they <laughs> still wanted to show me that. <laughs> And the, um, and the win against Mourinho's Inter as well. They, they were so proud of those two things. Um, <laughs> but that goal, I, I love the audacity of it. There are better goals, but I just think that the goals that surprise you when they go in and make you kind of utter that high-pitch noise where you are just yes. I can't believe someone could have done that. Uh, for me, they're the most exciting in the moment, and that's why I picked Pepe Mascara's goal.
0: I think with that one as well, when he hits it, it only just goes in, doesn't it? It sort of has... Clips, obviously, yeah. onto the crossbar. And for a second, even with the commentator, then you can hear him sort of just pause. And then there's that realisation that, yeah, that was. Because anyone, apart from the Palermo fans in that game, who saw that get hit, um, you know, would would be like, wow, okay. You know, that, that's special. And it does stick in the mind. And funnily enough, um, it's like Fabrizio Micoli, for Palermo, when he hit one from like that sort of range as well. You know, it's that sort of, that goal where you just go, wow. But for me, that's that one mm-hmm. special as well, because... That, like you said, that Catania team at the time, there was something about them. I think for me, it was they were exciting because football in Italy had gone through the doldrums with uh Calciopoli, and there was you know, okay, the World Cup win was there, but it really was picking itself back up off the floor. And a lot of these more provincial clubs, then, um, you know, there were some clubs that just came to the fore a little bit, and but they're always Catania always had that feeling that they were different. And sometimes when you get especially with it being the Sicilian club. You know, I think it was one. Just looking now, I'm just looking at it. One, two, three, four, five. I think it was seven or eight Argentinians in there. You know, in that squad, really? and it's it's, it's incredible. Um, and they just had that. Uh, I don't know that that bit of bit of skill, a bit of ruggedness as well. And I think that it's the nearest time that that team for me sort of um, was the team that really sort of stood out and represented what Sicily, Sicily is as a country. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite beautiful, but also quite rugged. And it had, it had it, a bit of bite
1: to it as well. It's elemental, isn't it? They had the, um, the, even their kit is elemental. It's it's that bold red and blue. They're both so different to the reds and blues you see on other shirts. It's like a scarlet red and this, this vibrant blue. And they represent the sea that surrounds Catania and the lava that, that it was built from, from yeah. Etna. It's, you know, it's in. if you go there, you can see. I went there and Etna was slightly live and so at night you could just see the top of Etna glowing It with lava and um, the whole town is built out of the lava or magma um, and it's, it's it's what it lives that's how they live, they live by the magma and the sea and so their kit reflects that it's so atavistic and that kind of, as you say, that, that reflects Sicilian culture, it reflects uh, Argentinian football I think as well and the fact that the two came together in that team was so exciting. I think um, when I went there, I got sunstroke because I was the most English person ever to sit in the upper tier of the Angelo Massimino. Um, There's no roof there. It's just this old concrete bowl. It's beautiful, actually, because of that. Um, Again, rugged, old-fashioned, so Southern Italian, gladiatorial arena. And uh, it was baking hot and the sun was just beating down on us early afternoon on a Sunday. And uh, I was just gradually kind of collapsing and melting in the upper tier as they lost to Bari, whose fans were right next to where we were sitting. And I have a soft spot for Bari. So I remember being really impressed by the away fans that day. It was a Serie B game. It was 3-2 to Bari. And the guy next to me got up and he just said, I've had enough of this shameful opera and stormed (laughs) out about five minutes before the end of the game. I like that. That's fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> that was uh, that, my that, abiding that. memory of Catania
0: <laughs> no that, that's special that is special and, and and that goal I mean you know I, obviously before this I was looking at it and and reliving that one it's one of those that's one bit of beauty about this the thread that was on and a lot of this that people's everyone's got different goals different memories and um you know you see them and it, it just takes you right back uh, not just to th- that time, but also, you know, it helps you remember some players who, you know, otherwise would have been completely forgotten about. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, that, that was a real, that was a special one, especially having given us a bit of a, a hit of uh, Sicilian football as well. So, yeah. okay, we're going to move on now because we're going to talk about the game. If you could watch one game again. Now, obviously, Torino is a club that's uh, close to your heart. Um, and this was a game in 2015-16, um, where you, it's Derby de la Mole, where Juventus were hosting Torino. And Torino were trying to end a 20-year wait um, to, to actually win this derby and beat their arch rivals. It was a game that was marred by a little bit of fan trouble as well. Um, I mean, take us through the game. And why,
1: why yeah. this game? It was actually April 2015. It was the end of the 14-15 season. Oh, is it was 14-15? Yeah. And um, Juventus were on course to win the title if they won at Torino. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Laz- um, I think it was, who was the other team? Lazio, I think, needed to lose. Mm-hmm. So um, Torino were in danger of losing a Derby della Mole at home and Juventus winning the title there. Um, now, this was a Torino team that uh, were quite exciting, actually. We, you know, Torino have been through since the 1992 UEFA Cup for against Ajax. Largely, a lot of downs with the odd up. And uh, spent a few years in Serie B, two or three occasions. Came back and under Giampiero Ventura, who, yeah, okay, we can remember him as a terrible Italy coach, but he was a fantastic coach for Torino. He, they was weren't good at the time. he was highly rated,
0: wasn't
1: he? Yeah, they weren't exciting. That was because he was just this experienced, pragmatic manager who knew how to put a team out that were hard to undo. They were so well positioned. Everyone knew their role. They had this great defense where you had the experience of, um, uh, I've forgotten his bloody name now, um, the <laughs> goalkeeper. Moretti, M- Moretti, sorry. Um
0: oh, Moretti, sorry. Yeah, thought so yeah, yeah. you were going to
1: talk about your Barry and talk about <laughs> so Jean Francois Gillet again, then for a second. But <laughs> no, his um, entire his name just entirely escaped me, despite the fact he's a Torino legend. Yeah, that experience of Moretti alongside, obviously my favourite Torino player up here, Camille Glick, who yeah. uh, was just a, a man mountain Polish centre back in the middle of the back three, and Maximovich before he became persona non grata. Um, and that, that back three were just so well positioned, so well organised, so strong, that I think Torino were just a frustrating team to play against. In the previous season, they'd had Cherchi and Immobile on the break mm-hmm. up front, and they fired themselves into Europe. They had a run this season we're talking about. They had a run in the Europa League, which uh, on the way they became the first Italian team to beat Athletic Club in Bilbao. And... Um, it was quite an exciting time. They didn't have as good a team as qualified for Europe. They ended up ninth with Maxi Lopez and Fabio Qualiarella using all their experience up front rather than the excitement of Churchy and moment But um, that game against Juventus, it was like everyone in the stadium was just determined to spoil the party for Juve. And like you say, they were desperate to end this 20-year wait for a win in the derby. Um, Pirlo scores a free kick in, I don't know, about half an hour or something. And... Um, you're thinking, oh no, the nightmare, and um, just just uh, right on half time, Darmian races into the box when we still thought of him as this potentially world class prospect that Torino had in the ranks that was definitely going to go somewhere mega. Um, Matteo Darmian arrives from he's playing left wing back in this game, and uh, takes an awful touch on an overhit cross, but the awful touch runs through straight through the middle of everyone in the box. And Buffon's a little bit slow to react. So Damian runs onto his touch, which goes about five metres in front of him and just larrups it into the net. And And, uh, they're one all on half-time and the the atmosphere just carried Torino in the second half. They were searching for the second. And Qualiarella got it. um, A lovely team move and he turned it in front of goal. But Padelli in goal, like just, just kind of, Padeli was just one of these goalies where he's really agile and he's capable of pulling off incredible saves, but he's also so clanger-prone. And you're just <laughs> thinking, which Pedelli is going to turn up today? And luckily, he made some cat-like saves towards <laughs> the end.
0: It's funny you mention that because I've referred to it before, that when you look at the goalkeepers he had that season, he had Gomez, who, again, was could be brilliant, could be awful. He had Pedelli, <laughs> who was exactly the same. And then he had Jean-Francois Gillet, who was exactly the same. <laughs> it was like they, they didn't decide to go, you know, we're going to get this really strong, dependable goalkeeper. They were just like, OK, we'll just get three at the same goalkeeper and just see who's in form. But I think Pedelli yeah. overall was the better goalkeeper, though.
1: Yeah, I think Pardelli, um, I, I quite liked having him in goal because I always felt like Torino had several players in their lineup that liked upsetting the odds. And he was one of those. You felt like, yeah, he might chuck one in against Empoli. But when we're playing one of the big teams, he's likely to turn up. And um, on this occasion, he made some remarkable saves. And we won the derby for the first time in 20 years. And and, yeah, okay, Juve went and won the league, but they didn't win it at the Mm. Olympico. And uh, the Olympico del Grande Torino is it, isn't it? And it was just like this, um, I don't know, huge party atmosphere where you think, okay, finally we've done it. And we've done it against a title winning team, a champions elect Juventus. So it's special. And uh, it was a culmination of me having become a Torino supporter out of the process of writing the book about their Grande Torino manager, Erno Egri mm-hmm. erbskorn So about five years prior to that, I'd started writing about, I'd, I'd heard about the Grande Torino many times, but I, I, I'd heard, I, I eventually decided to look into the manager because he, he didn't have a, an Italian name. And I read in passing, in um, John book, couch showed that that he'd survived the Holocaust and I just thought you know if someone survived the Holocaust built and managed a team as good as that and then died in a plane crash then they've had some life and it was my kind of project then for the next few years to uncover everything I could about Herbstein and write his biography which was such a, a rewarding process and I got to go to the the, the Superga anniversary mass, and um, at the Basilica di Superga, and which the plane crashed into, the the atmosphere on that day is something akin to a, a football game, and away an away day mixed with uh, a memorial service. Uh, it's the most surreal atmosphere where people turn up wearing their Torino colours, holding flags. There were even one or two people blowing horns, and then you get into the the church and suddenly everyone kind of comes down and there's a disrespectful silence during the service. And you see the family members of the team and the the management, you see people who, who knew them, you know, relatives and, um, it's so moving. There's the first team then come in, the current first team then come in, the captain reads out the names of the players who died that day, or the names of the um, people who died that day. And, um, At the end of it all, you're just left with this sense of how can a team be so well remembered and so well regarded so long after all this stuff happened? It's something magical and unique that Torino have built out of a tragedy. And I could never do anything but support that team after Mm -hmm. that. And the culmination of all of it was this win against Juventus five years later.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we'll put a link to the book. It's a superb book and it's absolutely worth the read, especially if you're interested in culture, but just because, like you said before, it's just a story of uh, what was an absolutely remarkable gentleman. And question for you, I mean, do you think Torino ever really recovered from that as a team? I mean, as a community, because to mm-hmm. me, it feels like there's been, yes, there's been snippets, but for a team that were flying, that you know, do, doing so well with so many su- superb players and like, you described very eloquently then the, the sense of loss that's still felt to this day. Uh, it feels like a club to me that's, especially when you have all the situations about the stadium and wh- when they wanted to return to it back in back in the you know from many years ago and th- they're turning into a training complex or a museum, etc., cetera, et cetera. It feels like a club that's never really, to me, uh, never really had closure or moved on as such.
1: Yeah, they're like a once handsome man who's now defined by... A glaring scar on his face, and I think they—they they probably are proud of that in a in in a sense. It's something that has been incorporated into their identity, and um, I think for for many people, it's a reason to love Torino as a club and mm. to sympathise with Torino as a club. But um, they're not a great club because of it, because I think essentially they were kind of batting above their average with that team. They they weren't the wealthiest club even then. They had yeah. the best structure, the best setup, the best staff, and they spotted players at the best moment to bring them in before the other richer clubs spotted them. And they built everything so strategically with one thing in mind, and that was to steal a march on all the other richer clubs coming out of the war. And as a result, they dominated Italian football for that period. But there's a sense I think that perhaps they had peaked, even when Superga happened, and and there's a good chance that maybe Matsola would have gone to Winter. Maybe you know, I'm not I'm not posthumously accusing him of leaving Torino. But I'm just saying maybe these, <laughs> maybe these players would have moved to to other big clubs. You know, Les Leavesley, who was the coach under Irbston, he had already agreed to go and take on the Juventus job yep. the next season. Yeah, and and there were, there were there were various there were various things happening. You know, they were trying to build um, from scratch again with another group of young players who all died at Superga as well. And that's the second tragedy, really, of that air disaster is not just that the Grande Torino team were lost, but every one of their young understudies who were being groomed to replace them were lost as well. And um, although like everyone rallied and they they were able to bring in players who wanted to come and help them regrow afterwards. Within a few years, it became clear that they were never going to be able to compete at the top again. And uh, apart from one or two specially built teams and uh, one in the late 60s around Maroni, and then the one in the 70s that won the league um, with Pulici and, um, and again in the early 90s where they, they challenged for the league title and lost in the UEFA Cup final and I think they've had sporadic spells where they've had strong teams, but since the early '90s, it's been almost impossible for anyone outside the wealthy elite in Italy to compete. Anyway, so they've probably done in the last ten years the best they could have done.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think that especially when you, you did, like you say, it's in flashes. I was watching the game the other day and. You know, you're looking at teams with one team with Marchi Garni in goal and Enzo Schifo and they give you glimpses, don't they? They give you sort of that hope because I think they're a team that you, it's, like you said before, it's very difficult not to like Torino, probably unless you're a Juventus fan, because of the history, because of the tradition and, and, and the, the class that sort of surrounds them. And there's always that like glimmer of hope that you want to see Torino get back to, not where they belong, I think that just to give the the fans, you know, some uh, hope of, uh, of winning some silverware and just adding to that. I think it's more about adding to the history that they've already got, but uh, no, that's it. It's a great, a great game. Um, you've chosen with that one. It's also worth going back in and downloading that and, um, and off YouTube or wherever you want to find it in there uh, and watching that one again, because uh, yeah, certainly good atmosphere as well with that one. Yeah. So it, the last one we've got here, well, for the time being at the moment, we've got to, if you were gonna sit down and obviously watch your watch that game and watch those goals with anybody, the player you've chosen will probably be a little bit annoyed because there's no Milan in there. And there's not yeah. a Milan there. He'd be saying, Well, what about that? What about that goal against Benfica? But so <laughs> you've chosen tell us who you've chosen and tell us why. Personally, massive favourite of mine at the time, um, you know, growing up in watching Italian football, for me, he was
1: a colossal. He was just amazing, but mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
1: chose chosen, sorry, go on. I've chosen the rock, Marcel Desailly, who's my favourite player of all time. Um, <laughs> he had this absolutely remarkable combination where you probably think of defenders as being either the stable stopper who positions himself brilliantly and prevents teams from getting across in or getting past him, Or you have the graceful ball-playing defender who brings it out, rolls it here, can probably do a job for you in midfield if you asked him. And essentially, Marcel Desai was both. And that's why I liked him so much. He always knew that he could go in and go through a player with a big challenge if he had to. And there were times where he did. But he only did it when he had to. And he was never grandstanding. I used to love the way he would take the ball off someone's toe at an angle. So he would approach from the side because he had them, um, as much as, as it was pace, I think it was just this unbelievable knowledge of what the quickest route back to cut a player's runoff was. So if someone was through on goal, Desiree would always, instead of just running towards them or chasing after them, he would take a route back that was more direct to the area so that he became an obstacle later. On. And there was one way that he would approach players from the side, nip the ball off their toe. And take it back round to the byline, and then he would look up the line for the pass and start a move that way. I just I love the way he swept the ball off these strikers who thought they were through on goal. And that was when he was playing at the back. I mean, for for Milan, you could say his best days were when he was playing at the, the bottom of a midfield as a yeah. sort of, in some ways, destructive ball winner. In other ways, you know, kicking things off with a, just a simple pass here. And uh, I, I imagine. Marcel Desai in my mind's eye um, pointing Uh, I just think of him organising, pointing (laughs) over there you need to be here why isn't someone there and that just that's so that era of Milan obviously there was a period before under Saki where the players had all been told where they had to be all the time and under Capello they were really well structured as well but those teams need a player on the pitch and Capello had Desai who was there as the organiser and then he just you know, caps it all off by stroking in a beautiful, um, well, deciding goal. Let's say in a uh, Champions League final, um, just in case anyone wasn't noticing him enough.
0: <laughs> it's it's funny you mention uh, Desai in that sort of in that role where it's really well. We're not used to players who can play so eloquently in two roles. And I was just wondering if you think that at the time, obviously, Ruud Hullet had been at Milan and could play multiple different roles. And when he left on loan and then it, they eventually signed for, for Sampdoria, um, I think Desai almost came in and, and took over that role that Hull had, in a sense, different players, but ultimately able to do uh, a multitude of things. And he's that sort of organisation, um, the organisational role, the sort of leadership that he had in different ways, again. But I think that personally, he he really filled the void that was left there and, it's, it's strange now to, to see a player uh, be able to do things so competently because we tend to see players, you know, we, we, we have a fit if uh, someone's sort of, you know, able to play in a hole or up front and we can't... Because I think now we like to see people do certain jobs, but when Rude Hullick went to Sampdoria, I always remember Peter Brackley talking to sven and Eriksson and sven and Eriksson saying he sets his formation out at Sampdoria and then Rude Hullick just plays where everywhere. <laughs> the place where he wants, and I'm just like you're getting your head around that, and you're thinking, so how do you mark that? How do you control that? And I think with Desai, like you said, then I think it was a little different from Hullet, but he was able to just at Milan. I think that at that time he just was, as you said, the, being a rock. Um, it's that player who's able to completely dominate defensively, but also when he broke out, that's one of the things that always reminds me of him. Is, uh, you know, if Milan could always were very, very good at containing teams and also hitting them on the break, even in their best days, they wouldn't always, you know, apart even when you're under the Saki, they wouldn't be continually attacking all the time. They would hold it back, even though they wouldn't ever stop going for goals. Um, they did play quite a lot on the counter. And I just think with, with Desai, I always remember him coming out from the back. And I think he's, would you say Desai is underrated? Uh,
1: I think. Um... He wasn't at the time. He was known to be one of the he was do you remember the Predators adverts for I think it was ahead of Euro ninety yeah. six. Uh he was he was the guy who um controlled uh an iron ball on a chain, a <laughs> wrecking ball <laughs> on his chest, and then volleyed it through the wall in the advert. And um I think they were just kind of you know, this guy's got incredible power and a great strike on him. And uh, everyone knew him as this iconic player at the heart of the best team in the world, which is what AC Milan were at the time. So at the time, no, but retrospectively, absolutely. People don't talk about him anymore, which is an absolute disgrace. He was an absolutely phenomenal player. And that goal against Barcelona in the Champions League final, kind of, him kind of turning away that all-white kit, two fists clenched. And I just think that's how we remember that Milan team, dismantling the Barcelona-Croix dream team. And death, i.e., at the centre of it, just a wrecking ball. And you can you could look at him that way, or you could look at him as I as I spoke earlier about this the, the, com- the complete transformation when he wanted to into this calm, cool headed defender who picked the best route back to goal and, and took the ball off players' toes. You know he could he like you say he could do it all. He could be anywhere, and. Uh, When he went to Chelsea, he just continued in that vein. Chelsea went from strength to strength around that time. And the fact that they were able to sign him was, for me as a Chelsea supporter, was just phenomenal because I loved my Italian football and I was used to watching AC Milan with him. And Mm. uh, then he comes to Stamford Bridge and I get to watch him. And um, alongside Frank LeBerth as it was at the time. What a a player he was. So He was a leader by charisma as well. You know, a real kind of flair of personality where... He would have something funny to say. He'd always be pulling a wild face in celebration or joking with someone. And uh, I've just got this kind of awe for players who can be one minute the most serious man on the pitch and next the guy at the centre of the celebration is joking about. A bit like Buffon in some ways in that respect.
0: Yeah. He always speaks very well um, Dessay as well. He's always comes across excellently. And like you said, that, that I always remember the goal against Barcelona. I think I said Benfica before I'm getting my ears confused. But no, it's um he it was I've got one question for you. Do you think that Milan in the summary in some respects, when I said that almost he replaced Hullett, do you think they were lucky to get him? Do you think they took our chance? Because obviously the season before, you, you know, he's with Marseille. And you know, obviously that team with all the, the scandal that surrounded it. Um, after their their win against Milan, and I think it was Basil Bowley, wasn't it, scored the header to win the European Cup. Um,
1: yeah. Do
0: you think they were lucky to fall on him or do you think it was more of a planned move at the time?
1: Oh, I was so young at the time. I was probably uh, well, nine or ten and um, <laughs> I wasn't really up on that stuff and I only really later came to understand exactly what had happened at Marseille and really to understand that big players always ended up at the top clubs. So I think at the time it felt like, um, oh, Desailly, I've, I've heard of him. He's a, he's a major player for Marseille and now he's gone to Milan. But looking yeah. back, yeah, you could be right. It could be a case that the the Marseille team was there for the picking and Milan were probably the, the top name at the time that were able to go in and, and take them. I think Deschamps went to Juventus, didn't he? And, and Desai went to, to Milan from that team and Jean-Pierre Papin as well went to Milan. Um, so yeah, they were clearly those players were suddenly available, and um, maybe it's a bit like when uh, the Calciopoli scandal hit Juventus, and several players suddenly came on the market that top clubs wanted.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, I think with with this a that that European Cup, the situation could have probably been different with Marseille, but whatever the whatever the case, Milan Milan did extremely well in, in getting him in there. Uh, Obviously, you know, they owe a lot of this success to him. Now, I'm not going to go quite just yet because we are running out of time. I would love to talk about quite a few more goals, but there is one that you, well, there's a a certain game, should we say, stroke goals that you mentioned that I do want to talk about because he's one of my favourite players of all time. Um, Recobar. Rekobar. Uh, For me, right, normally people will say, they categorise Recobar, Recobar, which you prefer. They categorise him as either... An absolutely exquisite talent who, you know, won Scudetti with the with Inter, so he's fantastic. Others say he's overrated and lazy and others would say that he's a talent that never fulfilled his potential. Where are you putting him? And tell us about the goals in the game you want to mention. All of the above.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. The, the, yeah, a player who produced moments of unbelievable quality of magic with his left foot and uh, therefore it was exciting when he was on the pitch because he might do that but he didn't deliver consistently enough to fulfill his potential Um and I think that that game that that we're both alluding to the first game of the season in 97-98 uh, when they went on to win the UEFA Cup and had the uh, running for the title with Juventus where we all remember what happened in the uh, <laughs> in the derby between Inter and Juventus towards the end of that season uh, with the penalty not given and then the other one given <laughs> at the other end. but but um, the first game of that season was televised in England it was Ronaldo's debut for Inter after making a world record move from Barcelona to Inter and I was at my um, nonna's house uh, she's Italian um, and we were watching the game thinking can't wait to see Ronaldo play uh club football because we didn't watch Spanish football. And um this guy, this guy Alvaro Ricova scored two unbelievable goals instead. <laughs> I mean Ronaldo came came good immediately in the next game and and went on to score 34 goals that season. But it was um this first of all it was just a, a scorching rocket, wasn't it? That he just directed straight into the top it's, corner from 13 on the left.
0: He's the audacity. I mean, you, you, for me, you know, he's coming. He's come to Italy, little known. And you're making your debut with one of, well, arguably football's greatest player at that time. And how did he even, I always want to know, how did he even get to do that? I mean, who... Why would the fact that he even tried that for me is amazing? You know, it's like it's like anybody, if it's a first day at work, if it's a new job, whatever you want to do, you know, you come in, you dress nice, you're polite to everyone, you don't just come in and bang, but he does. <laughs> and he's just amazing, he's spectacular. I mean, I remember watching that, and all of a sudden, yeah, I mean, like you say, the hype around Ronaldo was so much at the time, it was, it was immense. And then it was almost like you got blindsided by, by yeah. Ricova.
1: And he absolutely like, well, stole the show. <laughs> <laughs> he scored a second goal as well from a free kick, didn't he? Which was uh, over on the, sort of in the inside right channel, when he curled that one into the top corner as well. It was a slightly, it was a slightly more measured strike, but it was equally really? audacious. And what I just remember it? the final, final whistle, everyone sort of um, <laughs> surrounding him. At the end, and it was meant to be the Ronaldo show. And I, me and my brother went out to the back where the garages are on these this row of houses, and we were just basically larraping left-footed shots against the garages. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's another thing, though. We talk about the free kick. I mean, the first one, you know, it takes some audacity to go and have a shot from distance. Anyway, you know, on, on your day, even if you want it, obviously wanting to impress, but who allowed him to take the free kick? You look at the, the players in that team, that inter team. I suppose. Yeah, uh, do you think? I suppose if he doesn't score the first goal, he doesn't get to take the free kick, does he? But it's uh, it's it's an incredible sort of um, self confidence. But it's strange though because we talked at the start about you know is he a, waste, not a wasted talent? But is he well? Yeah, is he a wasted talent? Is he someone who um, didn't consistently perform? And like you're saying, all of the above, because he has this debut. But next season he's playing in Venice on loan. I mean that. Yeah. Can I just say that's a whole? That could be a whole other podcast about anyone lucky enough to be living in Venice and going to watch Recoba in that setting for a season. I can't. <laughs> even get in my head. That's just too much for me. But it's. A, but yeah, I mean, he didn't. I mean, that wasn't the norm, was it? With with him.
1: No, and that's funny because the fourth goal I was going to talk about we haven't had time to was oh, uh, Recoba of Venezia. Where he took yeah. a free kick, in uh looped it into the box, quite quite straight free kick, actually. And Pippo Maniero, who was coming from Milan, I think I think it was online, I don't know, um playing up front for them that season, just swivelled and turned on it and volleyed it with his heel into into the goal. It's like, <laughs> I can't believe that goal. And again at the well, time, no one was talking about anything else at school on Monday apart from Maniero's goal. And she- Mancini kind of repeated it didn't he, a week later.
0: Yes. It is a special, special goal. But and do you know what we're talking about now because we've got we have got a little bit more time and that like you say, the free kit for the first place was great. But again, there's something about that that team. Um I don't know whether it's just the city, the kit. It's just special. It really is a special sort of uh place to watch football. Uh, you know I've I've been once and it's 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 a fantastic fantastic experience. But the idea of you know Ricoba playing in that that surrounding, but I mean, what why? Yeah, again, you know, you're looking at that that goal, and it's it's, it's just the audacity to try it again, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, it was a special one, and uh, obviously Venezia that season. I t- think it was obviously the greatest season they've ever had, but it was it was something spectacular, wasn't it? Seeing the Venetian club in Serie, a.
1: yeah, and they finished mid-table, but they they produced some unbelievable results and some. Uh, magical goals and I think the Manny one, like I say, it was just someone trying something special in the moment and it came off and every few years someone does something on the football pitch. Completely unexpected that every schoolboy is then trying for the next week. There was a scorpion kick there, from <laughs> Brenna Higita, and then Manny Aero's was was one of those and I remember uh, we had a game, a school game, the, the next week. And a guy scored against us doing it, and all his mates were <laughs> kind of laughing and shouting, Maniero. And uh, I couldn't help but just basically go, Yeah, fair enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's part of the beauty about Italian football in that era because I think you know, I think it's probably best said by was the former Peter Brackley when on the documentary about Gazetta Football Italia, um, he said that he knew that the show was a hit when he walked through a park and he heard someone wheeling away shouting, Ravenelli. Yeah. he's Copying the way he said it and he thought, yeah, this <laughs> this is gonna work.
1: <laughs> it's it's, true. Uh...
0: <laughs> well, look, I'm gonna ask you one last question before you go. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really good fun just reliving all of those memories because they are special. But out of the four goals we've talked about, you've got to pick one. What's it gonna be?
1: Oh, okay. Um <laughs> solely because it was so exciting at the time. I'm going to pick Rakoba's first goal for Inter against Brescia because I could not believe what I was seeing. It was such a good strike by a man I'd never heard of.
0: That, uh, personally, I'm going to agree with you, partly because of bias but uh, for the club, but also as well just because it was incredible. Close second, I'd put Cassano actually against Inter um, yeah. because, again... That would have been for me one of the, the moments when you think, oh my god, who is this player? But yeah, the Ricoba was spectacular. And that really was a, a superb strike. So, um, like I said, thank you so much for joining. It's been really good fun. And just would you let any of our listeners just know where they can follow you, uh, where they can get your book, uh, and just anything information you wanna you wanna put out there.
1: Yeah, so my um Twitter tag is at the inside lefty. Um, and that's because uh my i used to have a website called the inside left and uh, the inside left was taken so i added a y on the end because that's what footballers do when they need a nickname so uh, <laughs> it's, uh it's at the inside lefty and you can find me there um and uh yeah the book Erbstein, the triumph and tragedy of football's forgotten pioneer by dominic bliss that's me just type it into google and you'll find it uh from the publisher themselves which is the blizzard uh and it's also on amazon kindle if you prefer a digital version
0: great stuff excellent well thank you again for thank well, not just thank you for being on the podcast today, but also thank you for the idea of this As, no worries. Uh, i'm sure we'll uh, have a lot more memories uh, to come and we'll hopefully have you back on here soon thanks rich cheers no problems okay well that's it for us ciao for now